in one of the most divisive elections in a generation. Can the United States come together in the face of continued democratic turmoil? On today's show, a former Irish ambassador to the US gives us his take. Graham Finlay from the School of Politics in UCD analyzes the results, while Shane Hannan once again takes us inside the White House. Plus, why did the polls get it so wrong? The Donald versus Uncle Joe, the reality TV star versus the DC veteran, red versus blue. You're listening to News Talk, and this is Race to the White House. He was only a good vice president because he understood how to kiss Barack Obama's ass. I'm ready to give him a new nickname, the former President Trump. We've done more in this administration than any president in the history of our country. We're in a battle for the soul of the nation. Hello, everyone. I'm Simon Tierney, and thank you for tuning in to Race to the White House, News Talk's weekly coverage of the US general election. You can join the conversation on Twitter at News Talk FM or indeed at Tierney Simon. After an election that many hoped would unite Americans, the nation appears now to be more divided than ever in its aftermath. The president has made countless accusations of voter fraud without managing so far to produce any evidence. Many fear that his behaviour will incite further division or worse. On several occasions over the past number of days, he has posted messages on Twitter which have contained either misleading information or outright lies, to the point that the administrators of the platform have had to repeatedly flag his tweets as such. On the other hand, the election has proved to be so close that the left must accept that the result does not represent the repudiation of President Trump that many were hoping for. Trump may be gone, but Trumpism is not. To discuss this, I'm joined by Graham Finlay from the School of Politics and International Relations in UCD. How are you, Graham? Not bad. How are you? Good, good. First off, I think it's probably likely, do you think, that we'll have recounts in a number of states or? Oh, certainly. I mean, one of the interesting things is that the Wisconsin recount would have cost the Trump campaign money. So they've gone sort of back and forth about whether whether to actually ask for that. The recounts happen a lot later after the results are certified later in the month. So we've got a little bit of a breather there. But there will definitely be recounts, which the campaign will probably not have to pay for in both Georgia and Pennsylvania because it's just really, really close. Okay, and what are the rules around uh, demanding a recount in terms of paying for it and when you can do it? So can you demand a recount if the margin is more than 1% and when do you start having to pay for it? So usually you can't under, like every state has different laws about this because that's how elections are in the United States. Usually if the difference is more than 1%, you can't demand a recount. Um, and, And that's true of a variety of races. If it's between 1% and 0.5% or even sometimes lower in different states, even as low as maybe 0.25%, uh, there's a recount, but you have to pay the costs of the state to do the recount, which are you know, quite costly, even if it's just a machine recount um, as opposed to a full hand recount, which is extremely costly. And as we saw in Florida in 2000, extremely long and time-consuming. So, um, and, but below that level, whatever that level is, um, the campaigns don't have to pay. So, um, which is great. I mean, it's good to, to, and and these recounts don't usually shift the number of votes by too much. Scott Walker of Wisconsin has said that the Trump campaign shouldn't ask for a recount and certainly shouldn't pay for it because, you know, 
past recounts have only led to about 253 votes, 270 votes, shifting either way when millions of votes have been cast. Are recounts likely to bring up new votes for President Trump? Or do you think, I mean, is it a worthwhile exercise or is it a sign of desperation? It is. It's a, it's a worthwhile exercise. I mean, if it's that close, there, there should be a recount. I, I know other parties would, would call for a recount. Um, sure. It's their yeah. right to call for a recount. The recount in Wisconsin last time wasn't asked for by the Clinton campaign. It was by Jill Stein's campaign, campaigning for the Green Party. So, you know, I mean, while it prolongs the process and sort of the nation is less able to move on, you know, if the recount really isn't likely to throw up uh, or change the result, I think, um, you know, we'll see... Uh, people accepting the result, even if there are recounts going on. So uh, again, you know, especially if Joe Biden has enough votes to to reach 270 without any of these contested states, that will also help sort of make them less of a trial for the United States at, at this difficult time. Okay. And how long do recounts generally take? Because I think a lot of our listeners will be starting to get fed up with the drawn out process. Now, that's I mean, let's remember Florida in 2000, where it was, I think it was over a month before. Oh, yeah, no, I mean, so a hand recount can take extremely long. Um, and when you're hand scrutinizing every single um, ballot, and of course, Florida had a really problematic ballot, that particular election, which led to all kinds of problems, um, it can take huge amounts of time. Again, the first thing they're going to do is a machine recount, which is where they're going to go through the machine tallies. They're going to check all the, the tallies, um, which they've done, um, of hand counting in the in the in the actual centers, but they're not going to look at every single ballot again, right? So that can take a few days. In the case of Wisconsin, uh, it might take a little bit more in a really big state like Pennsylvania. But um, they have the staff available now. A lot of these staff are, you know, uh, have been sourced relatively recently. They may they they have training, but but you know they need a lot of people. And so some of the conspiracy theories have actually largely, which have, have been based on the kind of bad actions of a few. Um, or mistaken actions of a few very poorly trained, recently hired staffers. So, so you don't want to have just anybody in there, and and you you want to have people who are have had some sleep and have had some training. Okay, so you're certain that these recounts are going to go ahead? I'm I'm not. I mean, nothing's certain in this particular election. I mean, the Trump campaign could suddenly decide it's not doable, and he doesn't want to fight it to the very end. That's not really Donald Trump's style. No. <laughs> so. So, I mean, if and again, we won't know if the votes are certified like a little while from now in the middle of the month. And so we are not going to know whether the recount is going to happen or not until um, or and we certainly won't know the results until, you know, some time from now. That's going to give the, the Trump campaign and President Trump some time to reflect. But that, again, is not his thing. So I suspect there'll be recounts. OK, now the president has been making allegations of voter fraud. Is there any evidence to corroborate these allegations? No. Um, I mean, that's just it, full stop. I mean, the actual claims he was making were, you know, hundreds of thousands of ballots, you know, the Democrats finding enough ballots to defeat him in whatever whatever state you, know, you would concern. I mean, that is, as, as people have said, like a giant, huge sort of Illuminati-level conspiracy, which just isn't occurring. And, you know, again, the professionalism of these, um, the people who are processing these ballots, the, of the secretaries of state, again, many of whom have partisan affiliations, some of whom are Republicans, is really, really something to see. And, and you know, only a few places, but they've been under quite serious pressure from Republican vote challengers who are, are more like a disorganized mob and often a heavily armed one, 
than the kind of challengers who were already in the room scrutinizing the ballots. And so when the Republicans claim they're not being given access to the ballots, they are. And um, sometimes they show up with a subpoena or a court order for something they can they could do anyway. So basically, they're, I mean, as usually, as always the case, even though there's more mail-in ballots this time, there is almost, there's no evidence of mad, massive fraud, and, and there's very little evidence of any small-scale fraud. Okay, obviously he's upset because he says that votes that came in late are being counted. But, um, you know, in some states, so long as the votes are postmarked on or before the election date, then they can legally be counted. So that's that. Uh, But on the other hand, there are some allegations that um, these vote dumps are happening uh, after November the 3rd in some count centres. And the implication being that all the dumps of the sacks of votes should be done on November the 3rd. Is there any evidence for that? No, I mean, there are really big warehouses full of votes, but again, the, the strictures, as you can imagine, are very, very, very thorough about you know, who has access to those buildings and how they get transported around. Um, the dumping, which people talk about in the, you know, the, the sort of when you hear about a vote dump, it's when the results are announced and the votes are sort of dumped into the figures, right? The actual ballots have been secure since the election um, and since they were received by mail. So it's, you know, it's just really uh, unfortunate language, I suppose, but it's, you know, it's something which has been seized upon, which is just not a real thing. Um, one of the interesting things about these mail-in ballots, and I think it's kind of great, is that what could make the difference in places like Georgia and Pennsylvania are military ballots. And they always come in by mail, and they always often come in quite late after, after the election day. And so every different state has a rule about when, when the military ballots have to be there, and these are serving spouses, spouses and, and, serve, and, and serving personnel abroad. Um, and, you know, the numbers of them are quite considerable because the U.S. is a big army. And, uh, you know, they're lumped in with the other mail-in ballots. But, you know, the Trump campaign wants to count those, uh, but also they, want, they don't want to count any other kind of mail-in ballots. I mean, all of this tells you just how seriously the system is taking everyone's vote and um, – to try and deny people, including service personnel, um, their vote is, is really, really problematic. And, you know, it's something the U.S. does every two years um, as a nation, and, and it works. The narrative that the president is using, that the election is being stolen from him, or was stolen from him, um, will Republicans row in behind this? There is a general silence at the moment, although there are some notable exceptions to that, some um, elected Republican representatives have come out and said that the allegations of voter fraud need to stop. Um, do you think that the there the will remain a Republican silence on this, or will they row in behind the president? We're already seeing um, Republicans, prominent Republicans, have to pick a side of, of that. <clears throat> there, are, there are a few exceptions um, who are calling it out. Um, Larry Hogan in, in Maryland um, and Mitt Romney the rest who are prominent Republicans are people who are leaving Congress, right? So they can't be primaried by Donald Trump or Trump people in the future. Um, it seems like the prominent Republicans who are being quiet or are even rowing in behind, like Lindsey Graham and Ted Cruz, you know, are, are hoping that, that Donald Trump doesn't run against them maybe in 2024, or, and certainly hoping that they don't lose his supporters or, lose, or get primaried by a much more Trumpian opponent um, for their own next election. So, you know, it's really been quite striking that 
you've got some veiled references from some some of the more um, self-styling principled major Republicans, but you've seen the vast bulk of um, of really prominent Republicans who've spoken out on this issue actually going all in with the president and saying things like, you know, state legislatures in Pennsylvania and Georgia should just invalidate the vote altogether and pick the electors themselves. I mean, that is quite extraordinary. And, and it's a real test for the Republican Party, which it's, it's fair to say they failed. Okay. Now, <sighs> This was a lot closer than people expected. Obviously, the polls got a number of states really wrong. I mean, we were speaking on this program recently with yourself, Graham, and some other people that, you know, Wisconsin was looking to be very much in favor of Biden. That didn't turn out to be the case. It was much, much closer than that. Equally, we spoke at length about how Florida was going to be the defining state of the election. That didn't turn out to be true either. Trump won that uh, relatively uh, easily. Um, so Trumpism remains alive and well in the United States, does it? Absolutely. Um, that is um, a result. And of course, you're, you're absolutely right to point out that I got everything spectacularly wrong. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so ah, again, no. Graham, you know, I wasn't put, pointing the finger. No, no, but I, no, I'll put my hand up. I mean, I put up a very optimistic map based on the idea that there was a massive turnout, that um, turnout favors the Democrats, that Biden had poll numbers which were well outside the margin of error in sure. a bunch of key states. And I'm thinking about you know some states where I thought Trump's policies had really hurt people, like Iowa, um, and where the farmers have suffered terribly under Trump's uh, you know war with China um, and under the pandemic. I, I also thought about whether you know, the new tax arrangements for suburbanites, you know, which were really hurting them and were part of their tax cut, but were actually hurting suburban wealthy voters, whether that would really play out the way it did in 2018. But I was wrong. Um, it turns out all those people are prepared to vote for, for Donald Trump, and um, which tells you, I mean, when you have such an extreme president who was threatening to arrest his political opponents and badgering his own attorney general to arrest his political opponent days before the election, and you still vote for him, you're on board with Trumpism. And, and so, you know, while the Democrats do have some thinking to do and they have to figure out how they can get their message together and how they can continue to drive up, you know, engagement and vote from all sorts of different communities, you know, they, you know, there's a more, fewer people who um, are being turned off by Trump than, than I've been saying for, for a while. So I'm going to eat crow on this one. Uh, Trumpism is, is very much alive and well. And... I think the Republicans are really have a problem, right? Because they're going to have to keep feeding this red meat to, to their voters just to keep them agitated and engaged. At the same time, you can't govern this way. And I think Trump has proved this. And so when they're trying to follow policy, they've got to both feed, you know, feed the beast, but also try and rejoin their efforts to the professional daily normal institutions of the United States. And Trumpism, ultimately, and we're seeing it in this election, is a rejection of the legitimacy of U.S. institutions if they don't go their way, and of all of the laws and principles which inform them. And in fact, the, um, the, the normal Republicans, like you know, Mitch McConnell, have to try and steer away where you know, they can get back in touch with the security establishment, the legal and justice establishment, and the professional policymakers and foreign officers, diplomats, 
who, who make the country work. Graham Finlay from the School of Politics and International Relations at UCD. Thank you, as ever, for joining us on Race to the White House. Okay, let's have a quick talk about the polls. Joining me now once again on the programme is Scott Clement, the polling director for The Washington Post. Scott, thank you for joining us. We're glad to be here. Um, The president said earlier in the week that the pollsters got the numbers knowingly wrong. That is an extraordinary allegation to make against the polling industry. What do you make of that allegation? Well, I don't quite understand it. Um, You know, pollsters have every incentive uh, to try to produce accurate results. Uh, When polls don't match election outcomes, it's, uh, you know, it's never comfortable and it's disappointing. The poll, we're still figuring out how polls did. Uh, And one thing we realized in 2016, but it's certainly true this year, is that uh, you really don't have the clear picture until all the votes have been counted. And as you can tell, it's Friday Election day was Tuesday, and uh, we still don't have all the votes counted and not even enough to call all of these states, let alone really get a clear picture of how well the polls fared. We do know, though, for example, that Wisconsin was being called before the election with a wide margin for Joe Biden. Those polls seem to have been categorically wrong. Well, uh, I want to make clear that, you know, no pre-election poll made a call. I mean, you know, polls in the U.S. don't make predictions about what will happen uh, in the future, their estimates at that point in time. But um, there's, we, we are going to be reviewing, uh, we've made a, a comment on this, that we're going to be reviewing um, all of our polling uh, in key states this year. Uh, certainly the Wisconsin survey, which overestimated Biden's margin. Um, you know, other polling that we did turned out to be very good. Uh, we found uh, Trump with 50 percent to Biden's 48 percent in Florida. That's within one percentage point of the vote margin. So there's really not a lot to be concerned about. Looking broadly at the polling, uh, right now it does look like polls in battleground states underestimated uh, the vote margin and Trump's support in the vote margin by roughly five percentage points, between four and five percentage points, which is similar to 2016. So there are uh, things to examine uh, in uh, these surveys, and that that pattern comes despite some methodological improvements that polls made uh, since 2016. So there's certainly uh, more to explore. Okay, I did speak earlier uh, in this series about the Trafalgar Group. Uh, they're a polling group um, located in the in the southern states. Um, they talk about the social desirability factor that there is a shy Trump voter. I mean, surely the pollsters now need to recognize that the shy Trump voter is a real thing. You know... The actual cause, the thing about when polling doesn't match election results is that it's sometimes difficult to know the exact cause. Sure. The shy Trump theory is one that's been out there, and there really wasn't a lot of evidence after the election when people examined the way that polls missed and the types of things that polls missed there. And one, one example is true here is that one theory with regard to shy Trump support is that once you're talking to a real human, you're not willing to disclose that you support Trump because you're somehow embarrassed about that. Um, yet surveys that were done online 
uh, didn't fare much better than surveys. They were done with live interviewers. So, and this is, again, just based on, we don't have final vote counts here, but the kind of patterns that cast doubt on that exact theory uh, are also true this year. Uh, I think it's very, I mean, I, I, there's certainly work to be done to try to understand what's going on, but I think assuming that because the result looks like 2016, that it vindicates a specific theory, it's very hard. Um, I'll also note that, you know, while Post and other polls did not make predictions of uh, of uh, of the outcome, Trafalgar Group did based on its polling, and they showed Trump winning the Electoral College. Very so true. I'm not, I'm not true. writing that off, but, it, you know, certainly uh, this is there's a pattern to find finding that yeah, I think you have to have a sober look at what happened, and part of that is understanding where the vote count is and really, really having a skeptical eye toward easy theories for why things went wrong. Because clearly, the theories for why uh, polls underestimated Trump's support in 2016 have not all borne out in the kind of changes that pollsters made okay. did not always yeah. bear better fruit. Scott Clement is the polling director for The Washington Post. Scott, thank you, as always, for joining us on Race to the White House. Race to the White House with Simon Tierney on News Talk. Welcome back to Race to the White House here on News Talk. Simon Tierney with you. Right, let's wind back the clock. It's time for our weekly segment from the archives. Ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Every U.S. presidential election has a winner, but each one must also have a loser. Before 2020, the tradition in American politics was for the defeated to concede graciously and to deliver an always tricky concession speech. In recent memory, perhaps the most heartbreaking of these came 20 years ago, when Al Gore lost the presidency by a mere 537 votes to George W. Bush. Just moments ago, I spoke with George W. Bush and congratulated him on becoming the 43rd president of the United States. Almost a century and a half ago, Senator Stephen Douglas told Abraham Lincoln, who had just defeated him for the presidency, partisan feeling must yield to patriotism. I'm with you, Mr. President, and God bless you. Well, in that same spirit, I say to President-elect Bush that what remains of partisan rancor must now be put aside, and may God bless his stewardship of this country. Neither he nor I anticipated this long and difficult road. Certainly neither of us wanted it to happen. Yet it came, and now it has ended, resolved as it must be resolved through the honored institutions of our democracy. One of the most gracious messages delivered by a defeated incumbent came in 1992, when Bush Sr. lost to an inspirational young 46-year-old from Arkansas by the name of Bill Clinton. We respect the majesty of the democratic system. I just called uh, Governor Clinton over in Little Rock and offered my congratulations. He did run a strong campaign. I wish him well in the White House. And uh, I want the country to know that our entire administration will work closely with his team to ensure the smooth transition of power. There is important work to be done and America must always come first. So we will get behind this new president and wish him, wish him well. When Richard Nixon resigned the presidency in 1974 after the Watergate scandal, his VP, Gerald Ford, took over the reins. 
However, the accidental president was unable to convert his opportunity after his unpopular pardon of Nixon and the fall of South Vietnam. Jimmy Carter, a relatively unknown former governor of Georgia, swept to victory in 1976, leaving Ford wondering what could have been. He cut his concession speech short due to losing his voice in the last days of the campaign, leaving his wife, First Lady Betty Ford, to speak on his behalf. It's been the greatest honour of my husband's life to have served his fellow Americans during two of the most difficult years in our history. The President urges all Americans to join him in giving your united support to President-elect Carter as he prepares to assume his new responsibilities. I'd like to read you the telegram the President sent to President-elect Carter this morning. Dear Jimmy, although there will continue to be disagreements over the best means to use in pursuing our goals, I want to assure you that you have my complete and wholehearted support as you take the oath of office this January. Carter, however, struggled to gain re-election four years later in the 1980 campaign and his poll numbers plummeted after a thrashing in the presidential debates against the former governor of California, Ronald Reagan. And so, once again, an incumbent president had to deliver a concession speech. This has been a long and hard-fought campaign, as you well know. But we must now come together as a united and a unified people to solve the problems that are still before us, to meet the challenges of a new decade. And I urge all of you to join in with me in a sincere and fruitful effort to support my successor when he undertakes this great responsibility as president of the greatest nation on earth. Now, America feels more divided currently than it has for a very long time, as exemplified not just by the election results, but the way in which they were received. Joining me to offer some insight on this is Michael Collins, former Irish ambassador to the United States and director general of the Institute of International and European Affairs. Michael, thank you for joining us. Good to be with you, Simon. Tell me this, first of all, um, you were obviously the Irish ambassador in Washington, D.C., when Barack Obama swept to power in 2008. How does the America of that period feel different to the America that you're seeing over the last few days? Well, you know, to be in America in uh, 2008 and uh, 2009, and indeed through five years of the Obama administration, which I was, uh, what was an extraordinary time. Um, obviously, not everybody agreed with Obama, uh, but to be at the inauguration of Obama in 2009, um, to be around as he formed his administration, to be around the first time we, um, we as Ireland were in the White House with him in 2009, they were extraordinary times. Um, uh, and, at, you know, you know it, it's hard to underestimate or to just uh, to, to minimize just the sense of overall excitement that there was there. There was not that sense that you get today um, uh, looking at the returns coming in, the conduct of the campaign, which was America divided. I'm not saying that America hadn't got its divisions, but you didn't get a sense of the rupture uh, and the division that seems to be there at the moment, which, of course, is now going to be a, a huge challenge for the new president. How have political norms changed over the past four years? Because 
the institutions were very sacrosanct at that point during that administration. It feels like the norms and institutions of America are under threat. Well, I, I think that's absolutely uh, right. I mean, I, I mean, I say, you know, maybe uh, we get a very distilled version of it over here. Uh, but but you do get that sense that some of the things that uh, for Americans are were sanctified and are regarded as sacrosanct, even just the use of language. And to be around in America in those years when the Obama administration was there, whether you agreed or disagreed with them, uh, it was an administration of some quality. And uh, to see the quality of the product out of the White House, the quality of the statements, the quality of the language, um, the respect the respect for the institutions and the respect generally for one another. As I say, not everybody agreed with one another, but there was a level of mutual respect and mutual understanding. Uh, that certainly has taken an, an, an extraordinary turn for, for, for the worse, it seems to me. And, uh, you know, the last number of years have really wreaked um, a lot of havoc and undermined some of the kind of the, the stabilizing um, uh, institutions that are very much part of the fabric of American uh, American life. Uh, and as I say, I, I don't know whether this is irretrievable damage or uh, whether it's something that can be now they can bind up the wounds, as, as, uh, as Lincoln would have put it, whether they can bind up the wounds and, and, and just begin the process of healing, because definitely uh, a healing process needs to begin. And obviously it's going to be, as I said earlier on, it's going to be a huge challenge for the president, uh, president-elect. A lot of people are critical of the... House and Senate Republicans for often weighing in behind the president when lies are clearly being told. I mean, some of these top Republicans, you must have come into contact with some of them over your years in D.C., the likes of Mitch McConnell. It's hard to understand why they're so willing to 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 weigh in behind the president at times, isn't it? Well, I have to say it is, and even again over overnight, over the last few nights, you know, when when the president um, uh, has been speaking in the way that he has, the extent to which uh, there has been a kind of a silence there in the face of of, of, of some of these um, quite extraordinary statements that the president has been making uh, is it is somewhat um, shocking, but. This is something that I, I, I was in Washington in a previous incarnation in the mid-1990s, and you could sense uh, the, with, the, with the whole campaign of, of uh, you know, of, uh, then when the Republicans came to power in, 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 uh, in, in 1994, you could feel uh, that, 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 that erosion taking place. And that erosion really has continued through these years and now most visibly and demonstrably manifest in the election over the last few days. Uh, so I think, um, yes, of course, we know uh, many, many Republican personalities. And I should just say it is really, really important to emphasize that for Ireland, you know, we, are, we, are, we, are, we, are, we have friends on both sides of the aisle, friends at all levels on both sides of, of the aisle. And some of them will be bigger supporters of President Trump than others. Not, not everyone was equally as enthusiastic. Uh, but 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 some of them, uh, I think, uh, you know, have obviously exercised a level of, of silence, which um, to, to, to many people, um, particularly in recent days, I think would, would, would find it a little bit surprising. Now, President Trump obviously supported the UK over Brexit. Um, I'm, I'm wondering what would a, a Biden presidency mean for Ireland in the context of Brexit, in your view, Michael? Well, it it, it should mean uh, it, for Ireland and for Europe, but I, I would have thought that I was just uh, uh, noting a, a comment that I think it was um, uh, Rhys Mogg said some time ago that President Trump would be uh, Britain's greatest ally after Brexit. Well, if President Trump is not to be there, well, obviously, uh, that that's obviously um, will be seen by many in Britain as, as a problem. I, I would just say, so So President Trump is, is our president um, um, elect uh, Biden, if that's the case, uh, will be a real, is a real friend of Ireland. I, I cannot 
um, minimize his deep uh, affection, um, uh, his, his obviously his deep Irishness. I remember vividly in 2010 when he came to our home in Washington when we were celebrating the, um, the retirement of, of Senator Christopher Dodd. And, um, you know, we, we had a pianist that night and we were playing Irish uh, tunes. The, the man had tears streaming down his eyes, or streaming down his face. He's deeply, deeply Irish. He has a deep affection for this country. He is, he is so his, his uh, you know, in that sense, Ireland can rest um, relatively easy uh, in terms of the, the, the emotional bonds that, that, that the president, uh, president, uh, president Biden has with Ireland. And I think, you know, that will augur well in terms of uh, issues if they should come to a head which hopefully they won't. Hopefully we will, we will never get to a point yeah. uh, where, 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 where this, the Brexit issue is not resolved and the, hopefully we will get an agreement. But I would say that, that um, President Biden and his team uh, will be on our side. I would have absolutely no doubt about it. But equally, uh, you know, I mean, obviously pr for them, Britain is also a very important um, uh, ally and friend, and we shouldn't minimise that. So their ambition obviously would be to, uh, to, to aspire to being friends to everybody. It's fascinating, Michael, to hear you speaking about meeting the then Vice President, Joe Biden. What were your impressions of him on a one-to-one -one basis? I, I have to say, um, you know, uh, he's an extraordinarily, extraordinarily um, warm, tactile man. And sometimes he got, he got into a little bit of trouble because he could be, uh, you know, he was accused of sometimes being a little bit too tactile. But it was all warmth. It was all genuine, um, uh, just a, a genuine, a genuinely warm personality. Something that doesn't always uh, maybe come across, but he is, he's extraordinarily nice to be with. One of the things we did do uh, back in 2010, shortly after the administration, uh, was formed uh, was that we instituted in addition to the normal activities we would have in Washington on St. Patrick's Day involving the White House uh, it should be remembered back in 2010 we also um, began the day in the Vice President's house uh, in, uh, Vice President Biden so he was very keen to that we should begin the day with him and that the day would go on from there uh, obviously down to the Oval Office down for the meeting with President Obama but he, for, for us he is as a and of course he, he's been in Ireland in, in, in more recent years he has Irish uh, antecedents Irish relatives in Louth and, and Mayo and these are deep he, they are deeply felt and I remember on another occasion he sent me details of you know some of the documentation that he had about his Irish antecedents so he, he really he really was very keen to establish his Irishness and I think he's done that much more intensively in recent years um, ever before indeed we ever knew uh, that he was ever going to become a president-elect. Um, I have to ask you, Michael, uh, when you finished up your post as ambassador to the United States, the Washington Post, they wrote about you. I was reading it this morning from their archive and they said, quote unquote, being Ireland's ambassador to the United States is like being a rock star. Everyone loves your work, even if they only know your greatest hits. Michael Collins, the latest of a long string of popular Irish ambassadors and the longest serving one in decades, is making his farewell lap this summer. So it seems Irish ambassadors are pretty popular in D.C. This must help to exert influence, Michael, does it? Well, the Irish ambassador is in a very privileged position in Washington, whether it's me, my predecessors or my successors. But it's not without hard work as well. Everything doesn't just um, fall into your lap. And I suppose that the challenge for us is that sometimes expectations are really high. 
uh, you know, that, that we have literally the key or the, the, to the door of the White House, and we can always control and gain access at will. It's not as easy as all of that. So what you see in the end of the day, the end product obviously is good and all the rest, but it involves decades of, of, of investment. I mean, uh, uh, the political relationships at all levels, Taoiseach down. Um, and and it, it, so this is a relationship that has to be nurtured. It has to be managed. It has to be, obviously, it has to be kept warm. And, um, and it has to be kept also alive through administrations sometimes which aren't as, as favourable to us as other ones. It just so happens now that our, our time has come again in a very obvious way. Uh, I remember also, not to be too anecdotal about it, how uh, the agony, and I, I can only describe it as agony, of how we were going to navigate the Obama administration. Because in those days, back in 2008, 2009, it wasn't so clear uh, that Obama was, was as Irish as he turned out to be. And the big challenge was, who was going to get into this White House? Who was going to get into this White House uh, early in 2009? And we knew, of course, that we had to get in that door in, in, um, in March of 2009 for St. Patrick's Day. But I can tell you up to mid-February, mid we were still waiting for the confirmation, the essential confirmation. Now, it did come and everything was fine. But I can just say, say to you, uh, as I say, while it may seem obvious, it may seem as if it's our due, there's an enormous amount of uh, underlying work involved in all of this in protecting the relationship and never, ever a relationship that's to be taken for granted. I'm talking about the Irish-American relationship. It's pure gold. It's pure gold for Ireland. It's pure gold for investment. It's pure gold for everything. And many, many countries in Washington, they just look with us at us with a great level of envy. And again, as, as a vice president, um, the president-elect Biden uh, comes to power, they would be scratching their heads and wondering, my God, here come the Irish again. How did they ever do that? And the reality is that in, in, in America, in every corner of America, this Irish America, it just so happens that we now have a president-elect who's about to walk in the door of the White House, you know, subject to the final results be becoming known. And one wonders if Biden does officially become president, if he would come to College Green here in Dublin and deliver remarks to huge crowds. I remember as a child being in College Green when Bill Clinton delivered his speech um, in College Green and of course I remember watching from when I was living in London when President Obama delivered a spectacularly powerful speech in College Green as well um, in 2011. Do you imagine if Biden is officially to become president that he would receive a similar welcome like his democratic predecessors? Oh, I hope so. Um, and I hope he will come to Ireland. I mean, he is a very different character to President Obama. You know, he hasn't got quite the oratorial skills that, 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 that President Obama, the unique oratorial skills that President Obama has. Uh, but I would imagine that, that uh, uh, President Biden, uh, you know, he is he, he will want to be in Ireland. He will want at some stage during his administration, during his, um, you know, President Obama came, I think, in his third year, 2011, as you say. Um, and I, I, I think uh, I can I can only imagine uh, that that um, Vice Pre our President uh, President Biden would want to be here, and I can only imagine also that he will get the enthusiastic respect and and um, and just acknowledgement that he should get. Uh, here is a man who has defied so many odds. Here's a man in the in the latter years of his life. The man will be 78 years of age as he takes up office. It is an extraordinary achievement. Uh, when many people thought that at the end of his vice presidential uh, time with President Obama, that that was probably it, only to return, uh, you know, the, these years later, four years later, uh, and and be be knocking on the door of the White House. And we in Ireland should have have plenty of cause to celebrate that. Uh, this for us is, is an extraordinary achievement. And to know, as I do know, the man's deep 
uh, affinity, affection, the relationship with Ireland, the fact that he has relations indeed even here, this is something which uh, you could not script and we should certainly uh, celebrate in every way that we can. Michael Collins, former Irish ambassador to the United States and current director general of the Institute of International and European Affairs. Michael, a pleasure to speak with you on Race to the White House. Thank you, Simon. Anytime. Race to the White House on News Talk. Welcome back to Race to the White House with me, Simon Tierney, here on News Talk this hour. It is that time. Let's make a phone call. Thank you for calling the White House. News Talk's Shane Hannan joins us for another edition of Thank You For Calling the White House. Shane, you're going to look at what happens to former presidents. Now, when I heard you were going to speak about this, there's something that came instantly into my mind. And it is uh, a particular episode of Veep, uh, Armando Iannucci's brilliant satire of the American presidency. And it's when Selena Meyer is no longer president. She's a former president. And her obsession is that she gets a presidential library because that's what the legacy will be about. So these presidential libraries are just hilarious. They've become so overblown, but they're really big objectives of former presidents, aren't they, Shane? Massively, massively, Simon. The famous quote and a good one to start this conversation off was from John Quincy Adams. There is nothing more pathetic in life than a former president. And he, of course, was the sixth president. But there's nothing pathetic about the uh, the presidential libraries because they are, they're fairly huge. And uh, one president in particular we have to thank for those presidential libraries, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. So he was a guy clearly clued into the historical um, purposes and the historical importance of keeping records. So uh, for a president to keep their records might seem like a, an obvious thing to do, but a lot of the presidents before FDR weren't excellent at keeping their records. But uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt arranged for the library and museum to archive all of his records. So of course, historians can benefit. Journalists can benefit as well from from all these records. We can look back and see various things that presidents did and said and thought over the years. Now, kind of before Delano Roosevelt and much before FDR as well, a lot of these records used to be thrown into boxes. So George Washington's nephew said all of Washington's records were mutilated by rats and damaged by damp. So there's a lot of things we probably could know about George Washington that we never will uh, because of that. But the libraries have changed all of that. So every president gets uh, their presidential libraries. And often they, they have, of Who course... Who pays for the hometown. presidential libraries? It's often the taxpayer. <laughs> it's, it's kind of seen as, a, as, a, as almost a present, as a well done on your years in office. Um, and I yeah. guess a nod to the hometown as well. They often put them in the hometowns. Well, Obama Obama's. is building his in a park or something in Chicago, isn't he? Exactly. And then George W. The Bushes have uh, put theirs in Texas, uh, similar to Lyndon Baines Johnson, um, Ronald Reagan in, in California, of course, and some of the presidents in, in little small towns, every town USA, where, where uh, the only notable thing of note is that they had a former president, little towns. So uh, the, Harry Truman was, was one man who maintained his library very well. And I guess the important thing, and you know, we're talking about when a president becomes a former president, uh, the book sales are so important. And what sells a good book? Well, keep good records. And, uh, you, you know, for a president to uh, write down all of their anecdotes and, I guess, file them properly, 
um, and start that library process while you're even still a president. And of course, uh, it's big money, Shane. I mean, give us some facts and figures now. Like Bill Clinton, his deal, his publishing deal was huge when he produced My Life, I think it was called, in the early 2000s. And of course, Obama's, exactly. Obama's autobiography is coming out in the next few weeks, I think. Yeah. So, I mean, money is in books. Um, and like George W. Bush, uh, his book, Decision Point, sold around one, one and a half million copies for $7 million or so. Um, and then Bill Clinton, you mentioned, he got a $25 million advance for that book, My, my Life. Uh, over two and a quarter million copies sold at the time. And he won a Grammy Award for that as well, for the audiobook for, uh, version for his own reading of his own book. Um, $65 million in advances uh, between the Obamas, Barack and Michelle for their books. As you mentioned, Barack's one uh, due out shortly. And uh, Jimmy Carter, he was flat broke after leaving uh, the Oval Office and wrote, ended up writing 14 books in all. So uh, some of them decided to write one. Well, as you uh, told us in story. a previous episode of Thank You For Calling The White House, Bill Clinton was in debt when he left the White House. So he probably had to write a book and go on the, ele- the lecture circuit. Huge, huge debt. And uh, you don't feel as sorry for him when you hear how much money he's made since he kind of turned to the speech and book writing circuit. And he's made over $250 million since leaving the White House. Uh, in fact, since 2001, yeah, leaving the White House in speaking fees, book contracts. So being president is a, is a pretty good career move when you think about it, because the amount of money raised by the Clinton Foundation, and he kind of used that foundation as a stepping stone into his own speaking world. And you have to remember Bill Clinton he had a pretty tough time straight out of office. We spoke recently on, on this uh, series about, uh, you know, Clinton pardoning Mark Rich, the fugitive financier, on his last day in office. And presidents often did those pardons. But uh, Clinton had a pretty rough day, first day out of office. Apparently, he went to Chapaqua in New York to get, a, to get a coffee. Of course, he had a Secret Service with him. But the press kind of doorstepped him there and were asking him questions about this last-ditch pardon. So he, he suddenly realized... I'm not president anymore. I have no uh, press secretary, no person to stand between myself and the press. And that was a, a pretty big, big wake-up call for Bill Clinton. But you don't feel too sorry for him. That reminds me of uh, that, that reminds me of the day after the last election in 2016, when there was that famous encounter between a mother and her. She was walking her dog in uh, upstate New York, and she bumped into Hillary Clinton going for a wander in the woods. <laughs> And it was just, there was something so poignant and so sad about that, wasn't there? I know, completely. It it, it makes you realise that once the elections are over, they go back to normal life uh, for many of them. And some of them kind of head in different directions. A lot of them don't want to get involved in politics ever again. And, you know, who could blame them, really? But some of them, just to bring you some historical uh, context as well, the 27th president, William Taft, he, he was the only president to go on to become chief justice of the Supreme Court, uh, the uh, aforementioned John Quincy Adams as well, the sixth president, he served in Congress for 18 years after his presidency. And then three former presidents actually sought re-election under third-party tickets, uh, Martin Van Buren, Millard Fillmore, and Theodore Roosevelt, none of them successful. But uh, yeah, the, the, the avenues that they all head down are quite, well, quite different. But you mentioned um, there at the beginning that fantastic quote from John Quincy Adams that there is nothing more pathetic in life than a former president. I was sort of thinking because so many presidents tend to be very old when they leave office, <coughs> mm. uh, uh, whichever two uh, win in this election, um, they'll obviously be very old when they leave. But uh, Obama, the last president, because he was 47 mm. when he started, so he was only in his mid to late 50s when he finished, it kind of seems a shame in some ways. It's almost like he peaked too soon 
And, you know, you sometimes see him doing things or giving speeches, but in a way, one wonders, is there much that he can really do with the rest of his life? Yeah, and and I guess the the election of Donald Trump, everyone before uh, Trump was elected um, in 2016 were talking about, you know, Obama has the world at his feet. He can do anything after this. He's one of the greatest speakers and orators in the world. And then Trump gets elected and you think, you know, that the Republican Congress is there. They're going to undo some of his greatest achievements, perhaps while he was in the White House for those eight years. And people are thinking he can do anything. He could get into race relations, gun control, criminal justice reform, climate change. He could teach law. Some people suggested he might even own a basketball team, uh, such as his passion for it. But I guess now uh, when, when Trump was elected, he had to focus on the fact that he is the senior statesman in the Democratic Party. And bringing through new new talent, new young Democratic uh, voices that are going to take on the Republican juggernaut over the next number of years. But family, I guess, for Obama was always such an important thing because um, Eric Erickson, a famous psychologist, he said, in midlife, you need three things, work, love and play. And, you know, Obama didn't have his father there with him uh, growing up. So being a father uh, to Sasha Amalia is clearly something that's massively important but Kamiri, to Obama. You mentioned um, a couple of minutes ago, was it President Taft that he became mm. Supreme Court Justice? Was that who you mentioned? Yes. Yeah, yes, so, William Taft. Uh, obviously, Obama, before he became president, he was uh, a law professor in Harvard, among other things. Could, could he potentially become um, a Supreme Court nominee if Joe Biden becomes president? Potentially. I mean, they, they kind of, uh, Joe Biden and him and uh, Obama kind of gave each other little nods here and there. Of course, Obama picked Biden as vice president, uh, but he also gave him the Presidential Medal of Freedom in a, in a great, there's a lovely video on YouTube of yes. Obama surprising Biden late on in his tenure uh, with the Presidential Medal of Freedom. So if anyone is going to pick Obama as a potential chief justice, of course, it's going to be his very good friend, Joe Biden. Um, who you have to remember as well, Barack Obama gave that very emotional speech at uh, Joe Biden's son Bo's funeral after he passed away from brain cancer. So the two of them are so, so close. And uh, you mentioned Obama's law background. Who You can't rule out the fact that uh, Obama could potentially be a, a future Supreme Court justice. Who knows? Okay. Now, in terms of security, because obviously the president, we've talked about this on previous episodes of Thank You for Calling mm. the White House, they have huge security detail. Do ex-presidents get similar levels of protection? They do. Uh, there was a law until 2012 that was overturned that saw you know, presidents receive this security secret service detail for 10 years after they left the Oval Office. Uh, but in 2012, that was overturned and they said, you know, we're going to give you secret service detail until until death. Uh, so besides the, the pension and other funds that we'll talk about, former presidents get this lifelong secret service protection for not only themselves, but their spouses and their children under the age of 16. Um, now, the Secret Service still screens all of their mail as well that they get. Uh, clearly, the mail is not taken directly to wherever the uh, former president lives, but uh, they've intercepted pipe bombs in recent years and, and different, um, I guess, terrorism through the mail, if you, if you call it that, in recent years, always at offsite facilities. So the Secret Service are still kept busy by uh, ex-presidents. Now, one man who, who kind of decided to forego his Secret Service detail eventually was the former president, Richard Nixon. So 11 years after he resigned in 19, uh, he resigned in 74, 11 years later in 1985, he, for, he forwent his uh, his Secret Service detail. It cost an estimated $3 million per year uh, per ex-president. So he decided to pay for his own bodyguard protection rather than have taxpayers fund it. Uh, his wife had, had given up her Secret Service detail the year before. So it's an interesting one. But yeah, even George H.W., you saw later in his years uh, being you know wheeled on his wheelchair into shops in, in the last couple of years of his life, 
uh, with Secret Service still surrounding him. So it's it's an interesting thing that they have those guys with them until the very end. Fascinating as ever, Shane. Thank you so much. That's News Talk's Shane Hannan for Thank You For Calling The White House. That's our lot for this week. Do subscribe to the podcast on the News Talk app on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. My thanks to producer Claire Collins. I'm Simon Tierney and thank you for listening to Race to the White House.